Hi, welcome to VerityCast. We're going to look at the key to getting people to buy in to what you have to offer. Everybody's got something to put on the table. Could be a product or a skill set or an idea of some kind. Whatever it is, everybody's got something to offer. So we went out and we talked to three people in very different lines of work. One is an actress in Hollywood. One is an entrepreneur with a couple of successful startups. And one does partnership development at a nonprofit. Uh, I'm Bridget Hurst, and I am an actress and a model in Los Angeles. That's the actress, Bridget Hurst. She's an up-and-coming figure in Hollywood, having appeared in various productions such as music videos, shorts, and the 2014 film I Remember You. Along with Bridget, we also talked to... Um, so when you're going in to make a pitch, know who your audience is, what their background is, um, and what they are looking for from the conversation. Dan Lambert has founded a number of successful startups, including Pushpins, a sort of coupon marketplace for grocery shoppers, and more recently, Board Vitals, a test prep resource for students that are studying for their medical school exams. And finally, my name is Rocky Beach, and my role at Code2040, I'm the Director of Partnerships and Development. Their goal is that by the year 2040, blacks and Latinos are proportionately represented in tech and in the American economy as a whole. Let's get started with Dan Lambert. He's an entrepreneur, and he's founded multiple successful startups. First, a grocery coupon marketplace called Pushpins, acquired by Ebates in 2012. And more recently, Board Vitals, a comprehensive test prep resource for medical students that are studying for their board exams. We asked him the key to getting investors to buy into you and jump on board. So I think the most important point is to know your audience. Um, so when you're going in to make a pitch, know who your audience is, what their background is, um, and what they are looking for from the conversation. Like when you're going into a venture capitalist, for example, uh, they're trying to create a diverse portfolio of many different companies, all of which are kind of water tickets, um, where a few will hit big and most will fail. And as part of that, you have to understand that they're coming from the mindset of, we only want companies that are going to shoot for the moon. Um, we don't want to look at companies that are a 2 or a 3x multiple. To Dan, the key is preparation. Know your audience, do your homework, know what they're most likely looking to get out of the relationship, and tailor your pitch accordingly. When preparing, he and his colleagues focus on a few key data points. Education, motivation, and third-party context. So I think the three key metrics to look at are, one, what is their educational level? You know, what is the appropriate tone to take and, and what industry proficiency they have? Because you may need to alter your pitch if they are outside of the context of um, what you're working on. I think the second one uh, is really uh, understanding what their motivation is, where they are coming from, and what their initiatives are inside of their company. So every company has a, a certain set of metrics that they need to execute on that on on that year, and you need to be able to tailor your conversation to um, to that metric. Um, and then third, who else? Like, are there any external validation points that you can use um, to influence them? If they're a venture capitalist, uh, you know, we'll try to talk to the LPs, uh, which are the limited partners in the fund that actually provide the capital to the venture capitalist. 
and getting to know those limited partners provide context for the venture, what the venture capitalist is trying to go after, and also are really good at making introductions. So I think those are a few factors that we look at and do our research on before engaging with, with any type of pitch. Education, meaning how familiar is the audience with your field. Motivation, meaning what purpose would your services fill within an investor's larger goals or narrative. And external validation, meaning what third-party people or organizations can provide context on the people or persons Dan and his team are targeting for investment dollars. For instance... A really good example is when we were trying to break into the publisher industry. Um, so we, Board Vitals as a company, we aggregate uh, medical journals and knowledge from different parts of the medical community, universities, top doctors, and we bring it all together into centralized training resources. A big part of that is getting large publishers to get on board with us. Hmm. Um, and in order to do that, you know, a lot of times you have to uh, show them that it's going to be a very valuable partnership for them um, as well as for you. Um, so what we did is understood who the like who the potential buyer was or who the potential licensor was, learned about their role in the company, and then we built a business case that would resonate with their objective. So their objective was to only partner with companies that were going to generate a lot of revenue. We took in a case study to them that showed that we had worked with a smaller publisher um, and that that smaller publisher relationship had gone really well. We had generated a lot of revenue for that smaller publisher. And so we were able to say that when we work with you, we're going to show 10 times the amount of, of revenue that we did for the smaller one because we're using mm -hmm. so much more of your content. Um, and so understanding that, that that was the business case that they, or the validation that they needed to take to their organization and providing them with a very solid financial model that showed that was the way that we got in. Essentially, Dan and his team backed up their proposal with a strong set of data tailored specifically to the publisher. In that particular example, it was a type of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours relationship. A great quote is, especially for startups, is that, you know, businesses are bought, they're not sold. Um, meaning that the that if you're in the right place at the right time, there will be an acquisition, um, even if your presentation wasn't perfect or if there are some blemishes in the company. In other words, you provide the publishing resources and know-how, and we will provide an opportunity to expand your reach and revenue as a publisher. In spite of this research and in spite of data to back you up, making the sale is still challenging, and it's often a mini-to-one scenario. For instance, a thousand companies pitch to an investor, but only a small handful may get funding. Or dozens of qualified candidates apply for a job, but only one will get the job. This can be intimidating. And how do you stand out? So I think why the venture capital process is fairly daunting um, is that investors have seen hundreds of deals um, and thousands, if not tens of thousands of companies, yeah. um, and most entrepreneurs have only seen two or three, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so you, there's a, there's a big knowledge differential between like between the two. Um, I think it gets easier with time. Um, you know, at some, some point over the next couple of years, I'll be starting my third startup and having gone through the experience several times, I come in more as a peer with the venture capitalist than, um, than someone who is pitching for funding for the very first time. Um, and I think that, and I think that's in part why venture capitalists tend to heavily favor second and third time founders, 
um, so that they don't have to pay for those mistakes that most founders make the first time. Um, so I think to start having, you know, having experience is really important and, and changes the the game. Okay, so everyone knows that more experience is generally better and more convincing to an investor. But what if you've never founded a startup before? Or what if you're applying for a job in an industry you have little direct experience in? Or what if you're new to sales altogether? Other ways to really stand out from the group. Um, one is just having a really polished uh, presentation, um, something that's very highly graphically engaging. Um, as an example, like instead of showing how dis- how um, uh, disorganized our market was, like at the very first slide of our pitch, it shows a, a doctor who's laying out on a pile of books and notes and journals and uh, looking at a website and trying to like make sense of all this medical information. That image conveys the industry problem so much stronger uh, than than a block of like 200 words of text that no one is going to read again. Um, oh, yeah. So finding so finding ways to uh, convey that better is really important. Um, I think the other thing to do to stand out is to make sure that you communicate yourself as a founder very highly. Um, you know, the team is one of the most important elements. And having a 30-second elevator pitch for yourself um, that touches on all of the, the biggest highlights of, of what you do relevant to what they're interested in is very important. And once you have this nice, polished presentation about yourself or about your company, based on strong data and based on exhaustive research, Dan says it all needs to come together into a memorable story. I do think that actually storytellers probably are some of the best people to pitch venture capitalists um, because everyone remembers a very good story arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that we build a presentation is to start out by painting this severe problem. Like, okay, this is why everything is so broken. And then they, they're envisioning this, this real problem. And then you're like, okay, I've got the magic bullet that is going to solve this. And then talking talking about like what the product is, who the buyer is, and then transitioning to here are the price points that we sell at. Here are the margins. Um, so not only is it a great is it a great industry solution, it's only it's also going to be a great solution for your firm. Um, so keeping that narrative arc in mind is really important. And then he takes this one step further. How can a job applicant, someone who is essentially selling their self and their ability, build a strong case for themselves? In a nutshell, it all comes down to preparation. So I've probably hired um, over 100 people during my career. And the, the one thing that everyone can always prepare for um, is anticipating what their role is going to be and coming in with a vision of how they see their role. Um, so I'm always super impressed when someone comes in and they say, here's where, here, here's where you're, where I think you're at right now. Um, and here's where I think we could, what we could solve in a year. And even if they're wrong, um, or even if they're off or they don't have a piece of information, the fact that they took the time to really think about the business and that they're forward looking, um, is very important. And it, it shows that they're a potential future leader in our organization. Um, so that's probably the best advice that I would give. And in terms of like a company acquisition, sometimes it really is outside of your control. But on an individual by individual basis, I, I do think you, you can exert significant control over the situation. 
So when it comes to selling, Dan's perspective as an entrepreneur and a founder comes down to preparation. Know your audience, know their background, expectations, and goals, and create a compelling, memorable pitch outlining your audience's challenges and how you are the right person to overcome them. Dan's experiences and background are quite different from our next guest. Bridget Hurst is the actress and model I talked about earlier. She's in her mid-20s and she lives near Hollywood. She's had some early success with a few credits to her name and makes a living out of selling herself, seeking acting roles and building a name. Transitioning to Hollywood wasn't exactly easy for her. From childhood all the way through to high school and then college, Bridget says, There was always a clear-cut path of, okay, if I do A, I can get to B. And Hmm. in these industries, there isn't that. A lot of it is luck and then also learning to brand yourself and market yourself and can that help your career without without the luck or do you, is it only luck? And so it's like this very weird dynamic of how do I find success in this? Setting luck and random chance aside for a moment, we asked Bridget about life as an up-and-coming actress in Hollywood and what steps she's taken to engineer her own success by selling herself effectively. For every 100 auditions you go on, you'll get, or I guess 101, you'll get 100 no's for every one yes. The odds are really stacked against you. And Seems tough. The way Bridget sees it, selling herself as an actress comes in two basic forms. First, the one to two minute audition. And second, the long-term buildup of your credibility and your network over time. Let's start with the first one, that short audition. With so little time in front of a casting director, what does she do to maximize her chances of success in landing the role? For her, the key to this is personal presence. We've all met those people where, you know, there's something about them. You don't know what it is, but you're just very drawn to them, and they have this kind of energy charisma about them that, you know, and it's it's something kind of intangible to describe, but we've all met people like that. And there's actually a lot of work you can do to sort of get yourself to that point where you can work through your energy so that you're, like, more comfortable in your skin and so that when you are in a room you kind of leave a different impression that most other people that aren't doing that work will leave. What I've learned through my studying of this is it's about presence and being able to be present to yourself so that you can meet with people in a different way. And for most of us, that is that we're not comfortable in our own skin. So one thing, and this is something that is taught in every drama school in the country, there's a few different styles of it, and the one that I started doing is called Fitzmorris Voice Work. Come again? That was Fitzmorris Voice Work, a set of techniques developed by the actress Catherine Fitzmorris as a comprehensive approach to voice training. Her methods are widely taught throughout the world in acting schools, studios, workshops, and the like. So Fitzmorris Voice Work looks at years of stress and tension we're holding on to it in our body primarily around our voice and our breathing. And, you know, something like that allows you to be more present because you're not fighting off different parts of yourself while trying to engage with other people. And then also another thing is you can do body work and movement, you know, because a lot of times, like, when you're nervous, you you know, you feel it in your body. Um, your shoulders might rise up closer to your ears. Our posture of what we have to do every day, looking down at computers and driving all the time, our posture is affected. And so your body is actually holding on to these things also. And if you're not in proper alignment, it's also harder to be present to people. 
And so it works on getting your, your body and your voice more in alignment, which has a huge difference with how you're able to connect with people. So in a one to two minute audition, Bridget says the actress has to be able to show it and resonate with the casting director on a personal level. That's sort of more how the acting and modeling auditions go, is as opposed to walking in and say, hey, this is the prep work I did. This is why it'd be great for you. You have to just be able to show it. It's like every audition is a little game that you show up to. And, you know, the more comfortable you are in your own skin, you know, that shines through as opposed to coming in completely disconnected. You know, who's, how can you show that, you know, you're, you're a one fluid instrument versus, you know, the 499 other applicants? A lot of the times the way you talk and how much you are in your body can really affect how people view your presentation. It's a, you know, it's a subtext. It's the unspoken pitch of selling you. For the short audition, as an actor or actress, it's all about training yourself to be more present in the room and to your audience, with the goal of connecting with them in a memorable way that engages them and makes you stand out from the crowd. What about long term? It's one thing to have a good audition and quite another thing to achieve long term success and credibility in Hollywood. How does an actor or actress generate that kind of success? How do you know when you've arrived? So what auditioning eventually comes to, uh, so someone like Meryl Streep or Daniel Day-Lewis, they don't audition anymore. They have such credibility built up that someone will call them and say, hey, we want to offer you this role. Does your schedule allow for you to take this role? You eventually miss out on the auditioning process in general. Of you, you, know, you, know, you have the, the direct relationship with the directors, with the studios, with the producers and then you also have the name of, if I put this person in this film, people are going to want to go see it. Okay, so you've arrived when the roles come to you, not vice versa. But how do you get to that point? Is there some secret sauce? In a place like Hollywood, the epicenter of the entertainment industry, there's more than a fair amount of chance and luck. But for Bridget, there are things you can do to tip the scales slightly in your favor in terms of the long-term credibility. Networking, in many different forms. You know, you have to be very active on social media is one of them. And then, you know, a lot of people networking in Hollywood is, you know, you go to parties and you go meet people. They meet people through friends. And a lot of times, all of Hollywood is built on favors. If you know someone, you've got to call them. And, you know, you pull your fa- you got your favor once, you call it, you pull it in. And what, what's the worst they can say? No. And if not, okay, great. And if yes, then that's a huge advantage for you. And so you work on getting your reel built, meeting as many people as possible, you know, establishing those relationships with the casting directors. And when you're on set, you can't be high maintenance. You have to develop a reputation of your, for yourself of being really professional and easy to work with. And so a lot of it, you know, it's behavioral, too, of how you act. So the key to the strength of your name and of your long-term credibility is building trusted relationships with people who know you and know the consistency and the high quality of your work. When a casting director, or a producer, or a film director, or whomever, sees the name Bridget Hurst, they know they're going to get A, B, C, and D, for instance. And it's up to Bridget to decide what that A, B, C, and D are by consistently delivering high-quality work and by keeping her name on their radar. What a lot of people do is, you know, you send out when you... If you do a play or you do a new movie, you send out postcards saying, hey, to people you've worked with in the past. They can be agents, cinematographers, directors, whoever. You want to keep your name on their 
on their radar. So you'll send out a postcard um, saying, hey, just wanted to let you know I, I just did this. Uh, feel free to check it out. Um, you know, stuff like that of little things of it's kind of like sending out thank you cards, but it's not really. It's kind of, hey, remember me? Here I am. So for the one to two minute audition, it's all about connecting with the casting director through your presence. Long term, it's about high quality work and consistent networking. In the end, Bridget sells herself by being present and connecting in her auditions and by networking around the industry as much as possible to build a credible name for herself. In addition to the startup guy, Dan, and the actress, Bridget, we spoke to someone at a nonprofit. Rocky Beach is the nonprofit guy we introduced earlier in the show. His title is the head of partnerships and development at an organization called Code 2040 in San Francisco. His job is to build strong community and corporate partnerships and increase awareness and support of his organization. In other words, a large part of his job is connecting companies with their work in order to get others to buy in to Code 2040's mission and values. With Code 2040, it's a, it's a complex situation, a very nuanced way of looking at connecting companies with our work. Generally, in a nonprofit, a company is giving for uh, marketing reasons or for uh, because they want to make an impact in the community. Um, with Code 2040, it's a little bit more nuanced because uh, companies are also benefiting from our services of connecting more students across the country with a career in tech. And so companies are benefiting from the service. They also really care about uh, making a difference in the community and making the world a better place. And obviously, they, they care about being connected to diversity and inclusion. So there's kind of a three-pronged approach to why I think companies get involved with us. And so when giving to or partnering with a nonprofit in some way, Rocky says that most corporations are looking for marketing buzz or community impact or something like that. Code 2040, however, is a little bit different. They can connect companies with capable engineering talent from minority communities, offering these companies a direct return and their choice to partner with Code 2040. And for Rocky, a lot of this work starts with relationship building and trust based on credible exposure to his organization's work. Yeah, my role is to, it's just, it's very similar to getting companies to, or people to buy into a product. It's, it's a lot about relationship building. And you don't really have to convince them that it's a good thing. They understand why it's important. But my role is to help them along the process of becoming a partner from the initial conversation of why it's important, uh, why it's important to engage with us, all the way to um, having them uh, sign a partnership agreement and uh, sign on as a, a long-term partner with us. But not only is it the exposure to their work, it's... It's, it's deeper than exposure, right? It's, a, it's an emotional connection to what we're doing. From the emotional standpoint, getting people to connect with what we're doing, you can get them to be part of our community and our family. We call it a Code 2040 family long-term. And as our organization grows, we, we think this is going to be an important component moving forward, is how do we continue to, as we grow, tell the really um, grassroots stories of why, why it matters to one student, why it's made a big difference in somebody else's life. And part of this emotional connection is being yourself. He realizes that this sounds cliche, but it's also true. For him, an individual approach is paramount. Communicating your message in a way particular to yourself and in your own words. What we talk about is bringing yourself to work. Be who you are and let that uh, let your job reflect that you know, if in, in your messaging to, to customers. 
I've always felt like it's important to let people see who you are and not try to craft the message in a way that everyone else would craft it. But how do you find that authentic you within yourself and then bring it to the top in a genuine way that still fits within the context of a larger narrative? That's, a, that's actually a really good question. And it brings back a story that I remember really specifically. And this is one of my first bosses at United Way many years ago. Um, and she wasn't a good boss. And I was, I knew the information. I was about to make a presentation the next day to some uh, executives at one of the companies I was working with. And she handed me a PowerPoint um, that she had created. And she said to present off of it and to, to study it and basically memorize it. And I struggled and struggled and struggled for days in trying to memorize all this content. I knew the content. It was in my heart. I knew it in my head, but trying to present it in her words. And I remember starting and trying to, to, to basically recite what the PowerPoint said wasn't working. And I was stumbling through it. And about a minute or two in the present, presentation, I can tell it wasn't resonating with the crowd. I decided to just ditch her wording and the, the script that had been set up for me and, and speak from my heart and speak from my knowledge. And I had the crowd engage with me. I they asked a lot of questions and I didn't go through it in a structured way. And that is something that stayed with me the rest of my career is that, you know, if I'm going to present something or talk about something, it has to be in my own words and I can get people to connect with me, the person I am and understand what I'm presenting better if I'm comfortable. To Rocky, the key is knowing yourself, knowing your content, and being comfortable as yourself without trying to be someone or something else that you're not. There's been multiple times throughout his career where that comfort level has not come naturally, and he's had to create it between him and his audience despite negative circumstances. For instance. One time I was presenting in, in Concord, out in Concord, California, and it was to a group of bankers and it was at an ice cream social. And I'd gone to hunt like 50 of these a year. Not ice cream socials necessarily, but group meetings. And it was to talk about getting involved with the community as I talk about United Way. Well, the long story short, I was running late, got stuck in traffic. I assumed it was going to be like two to three people. And I'm talking to the organizer and I'm like, I'm running late. I'm like 10 minutes late. And the organizer's like, okay, get here as soon as possible. It's really hot up here. It's in the summer. It's in Concord. And people are sweating and ice cream's melting. I'm like, oh no, I gotta get there. So I hurry, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. I get to the parking deck, run up the stairs. I'm drenched in sweat, stressed out. And there's about 200 people there <laughs> waiting on me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? And first thing I did was just tell everybody else, you know, I'm really sweaty, really sorry. I know you were waiting. Sorry the ice cream's melted. To try to, to, to be in their space with them, right? They've been waiting on me. But if I'd have been like starting off on a bad fit and really worried where like all my stress and carried that with me in the presentation, I feel like it'd have been terrible. But I got them laughing and I got them on my side. And once they're on my side, I was able to get into why I was there and what I was there to do. And at the end, they gave me a standing ovation. Well, they were already standing, but they gave me an ovation. <laughs> and I felt like it was one of my best performance, one of my best presentations I've ever had. And it started out so poorly. And so as Rocky engages with an audience, whether that's one or two or 200 people, he must do it in a way that is comfortable for both parties. He knows himself, he knows his content, and the audience can see his passion come through naturally. Because for him, 
in a nutshell, the most important thing is that you need to be passionate about what you're doing. If you don't personally believe in what you're doing, you can't get other people to be engaged with you. You can't get other people to buy into it. There's many ways to think about how to make the sale. It could be on a personal level, like Bridget the actress connecting with the casting director. It could be a thorough data-first approach, like Dan the entrepreneur. Or it could be a mission-first approach, like Rocky at the nonprofit. Whatever the approach, everyone's got something to offer. And there are more ways to think about making the sale than we have time to discuss on this show. So think about it. What did you have to offer? What are you selling? And what's the best way for you to make the sale? This is VerityCast, proudly recorded and produced in San Francisco.